0: Welcome to The Spectacular Century, conversations about 19th century performance and visual culture. I'm Kate Holmes, I'm a performance historian based out of the University of Exeter.
1: I'm Jim Davis and I'm a theatre historian
0: based at the University of Warwick. I'm Kate Newey, I'm a theatre historian at the University of Exeter. I'm Patricia Smith and I'm an art historian working at the University of Warwick. And we're part of an AHRC project working on theatre and visual culture in the long 19th century. So, what are we going to be talking about? I'll be talking to Jim Davis about the relationship between theatre, art and visual culture in the 19th century and thinking about the idea of a new, more socially diverse audience. I'm a theatre
1: historian and Pat is an art historian. And I'm very much looking forward to learning more about how art itself, visual culture in particular, pinges on the theatre of the 19th century. And Pat, I know that you've been exploring the relationship between visual art, visual culture and theatre within the context um, particularly of France in the early 19th century. And I believe with a painter that you'll tell us something about Delaroche.
0: My way into thinking about the relationship between 19th century painting, visual culture and theatre started with an interest in the artist Paul Delaroche. He's a French artist. His painting, The Execution of Lady Jane Grey, is in the National Gallery on display. It's one of the most popular paintings in the gallery. He was the most famous artist in the world in mid-century, in the mid-19th century, But by the end of the 19th century, his reputation had fallen to such an extent that he wasn't really taken seriously anymore. So I think there's some of the same problems that we associate with a theatrical genre like melodrama uh, with an artist like Paul Delaroche. So when I was starting working on him in, say, the early 1990s when I was doing my undergraduate studies, he was presented as – I mean, very much seen as a bad artist, actually –
1: Can you tell us why that was? Is this because he is too popular, or why is he seen as bad?
0: I think that was certainly something to do with it. I mean, I suppose when I was doing my undergraduate degree, this was presented like a problem. Like, Paul Delaroche, what happened? What went wrong? And, uh, you know, looking at the paintings, I remember looking at uh, the painting Young Christian Martyr, which is an astonishing painting. It's one of his last works, and it's set in early Rome and it's a young woman who's been martyred and she's floating down the Tiber but it's absolutely beautiful it's like the whole painting is like it's moonlit scene or a nighttime scene actually you can kind of see moonlight but not the moon and you just see this body floating in water and kind of you can see her body through the water and it's a really astonishing effect it's amazing and yet you sort of felt guilty for liking it. And I just wanted to kind of really interrogate that. You know, what, what's actually going on here? Why, why do we see this artist as somehow not serious? It's just a bit embarrassing.
1: Can I ask you, is that because he's seen as theatrical or is is there some association with melodrama or popular genres that makes people have this sort of negative view of him?
0: Well, when I went back to the 19th century and looked at you know what did people at the time think that's what I thought that's you know this is how I'm going to start to answer my questions about him and one of the things that critics said was that his painting was melodramatic so that was the first time I heard anything about melodrama then and I thought okay so what does that actually mean for an art critic and this is quite different from theatrical actually because that's a whole other discussion about theatricality that we may or may not get onto. But to say that an artist is, is melodramatic, it's like melodrama, and I thought, well, what does that mean? So that, then I went to look at 19th century melodrama and found a theatrical genre that's really, really visual. So you've on the one hand, you've got art critics complaining that this painting is too melodramatic, and then you've got theatre critics complaining that this theatrical genre is just too pictorial, too visual. And in both cases, it kind of means not really serious, like doing something it shouldn't do. But I think what I found, what really kind of set me on the, the path to thinking about this in terms of its popular appeal is that in both cases, I think the thing that was bothering critics was that it really appealed to a popular audience. It appealed to this new type of spectator new type of visitor in the art gallery a new type of visitor in the theatre who maybe you know they weren't connoisseurs they didn't know a lot about either art form but they are really keen to take part and (laughs) keen to respond so how do they respond that's the thing.
1: Well that's the point I wanted to sort of look at with you because obviously melodrama often triggered quite emotional responses and part of the sort of negative aspect of melodrama was often seen as its emotional impact so I, I'm wondering to what extent in visual culture in especially in paintings like those of Della Ross you're talking about is this a problem that the popular response is an emotional response?
0: Yeah I think you know that that's it it's the idea that an emotional response is the, not the correct type of response. So I think then and now, there's this idea of connoisseurship. To engage in the correct way with a work of art is to engage with, I don't know, questions of form, to relate it to other artworks, not to respond to the emotional content. That's seen as a kind of lowbrow mode of response. And I, what I wanted to do was really you know, question that. You know, Why? Because if you are new to art, you may not be equipped to talk about things like brushwork, technique, the influence of previous art on what you're looking at. You're going to respond in an emotional way. And that's not to say that that's a simple way or a crude way. I think that's a misconception. It's just as complex as any other mode of response. But I think you are going to respond in a different way.
1: I'd agree with you, and it seems to me that one of the points you're raising, and because of the way we work in disciplines, we don't always think about this, is that there may be a common gallery audience, common theatre audience, and that we're we're almost tending to think as if spectatorship has its own sort of niche in each discipline, but Mm. there are crossovers and relationships that we haven't really been exploring effectively and that we're actually making assumptions within disciplinary divisions when we should actually be looking at how people uh, behaved in galleries. And I I mean, as an example, I'm aware that people laughed at paintings sometimes in art galleries, sometimes they cried. And in a way, that's not that different from theatrical uh, audience responses. So... There's, so, there's something in what you're saying, isn't there, about common spectatorship?
0: Well, I think we're looking at the same group of people. It's it's a newly expanded urban audience and a more socially diverse audience than previously for art, certainly. And th- so, yeah, I think you've got the same audience there. Yes, this thing about laughing, it, I mean, we know that, that you know, visitors to... Annual exhibitions responded in different ways. So they laughed at paintings they were they fainted apparently occasionally. But also, I mean, one that really interests me, there's a painting by De La Roche at the annual exhibition in Paris in 1835, um, the assassination of the Duc de Guise, and it's a painting of when, pe- when you first look at it, one of the critics said it just looks like a big empty room. It, it's not quite what they expected, but it's the aftermath of an, an assassination. And you have to kind of put together what's happened from looking at the clues in the picture. Because what you've kind of got is like a big empty gap in the middle where you expect the action to be. And people were clamoring to see this picture. That's one of the examples when the critics were saying, oh, this is like being in the queue for a melodrama. Because everyone was kind of fighting each other to get to this picture. And cleverly it was it had been hung in the exhibition low down in a corner, which created a sort of crush. And some people were saying, Oh, Delaroche has kind of he's orchestrated this himself. It's like a publicity stunt to kind of create the situation, but I don't think so. So there was a big crush of people and it was said that you know you were risking life and limb trying to get a look at this picture so this is tremendous enthusiasm and that's one of the things that actually people are picking up on when they say it's like melodrama it's this kind of real thirst to see this thing. That's
1: really interesting and I I mean I, I know that other artists both in France, and certainly in England, had created their sorts of responses with the spectators in different circumstances, people like Frith, for instance, in the mid-19th century. But in a sense, there's a context to all of this, and I wonder if we should have a bit of a talk about that as well, because we talk about visual culture. What, in fact, are we talking about in terms of the early to mid-19th century when we talk about visual culture? Both in relationship to theatre, but even in its more general terms,
0: what does it actually mean? Well, that's a big question, Jim. But I think, you know, visual culture, it, it's, we refer to art, it's not art strictly speaking, it's not what was hanging in galleries and referred to as wor- a work of art, fine art. It's a broader category, and it includes things like. Panoramas, gigantic 360-degree painting in the round. Dioramas, which was a new invention in the 1820s. All these kind of categories of visual spectacle that don't fall neatly into, into art. And that also includes, of course, theatrical spectacle, which, as we know, melodrama It was an intensely visual genre. But also, I think that visual culture is the way that people make sense of the world. Visually. So it could mean the way that people understand their fellow human beings in terms of their body language, their gestures, their faces, their facial expressions, their clothes, the way that people understand their physical environment, the city they live in, the space they live in, and how that changes historically. So art is part of that visual culture, but it's all connected in the 19th century, and that's why. Looking at theatre as an aspect of visual culture allows us to make the connections that were there between art of the period and also the way that people understood the world around them. That's
1: really interesting because it seems to me that we're talking about a context. We're not talking about art objects which remain as opposed to the ephemerality, say, of performance. We're talking about... Visual culture is ephemeral in many ways as well and we're we're arguing in a sense that there's a a context to visual culture that we're talking about specific periods of time and the way people are looking, the way people are observing the world at, at any given time and that is quite different from saying oh I'm going to talk about a picture or I'm going to talk about high art So even when you're talking, for instance, about Delaroche, we're actually talking about a moment in time where contextually people are comparing his work to melodrama in in ways that um, might not happen today because he's taken more seriously by by art connoisseurs. And as you said, he's got pride of place in the National Gallery in London. And, um, you know, he's a serious painter now.
0: He's taken more seriously now. And, yeah, I think you're right, actually. I think part of the rehabilitation of this artist that's taken place has involved kind of a downplaying of his popularity. You know, that, I can, that's still seen as kind of a little bit suspect. I mean, you mentioned that it's a very popular picture in the National Gallery. I don't think... I mean, it was, it was in storage for a long time. It was only taken out in 1975 and put on show. And I think the curators at that time didn't expect it to be as popular now with 20th and 21st century audiences as it turned out to be. So Delaroche, he's always had this tremendous, I don't know, this, this powerful effect on popular audiences. And that's true now as it was in the 1820s, which is really fascinating. Okay.
1: In terms of that sort of powerful effect, I mean, one, one or two forms you mentioned, the panorama, diorama, are obviously sensational forms of spectacle. They have an enormously uh, powerful impact on spectators in the times in which they were shown. They, they're ephemeral, they haven't lasted, so we don't, we don't have actual panoramas and dioramas, by and large, from, from that period. But we obviously in theatre there is a sort of sensational element uh, scenically that carries on through the nineteenth century. And again, no very little, if any, theatre scenery survives from that period. When we begin to talk about sensation, I'm always reminded that, you know, perhaps one of the dramatists most associated with the sensational uh, melodrama and therefore the sort of visual potential of melodrama as well in in the way that he particularly used uh, visual effects is Dion Busico. And I I'm also aware that for instance a popular play such as the Colin Bourne, the Irish Melodrama about the Girl who is mistreated in a sense by the uh, her husband and nearly drowned um, in a famous sensation scene. We'll talk a bit more about in a minute. You know, Buzekko drew on art in actually developing with Colin Bourne. I, I think you know, if you can remind me on Irish landscape scenery and so on, um, or rather Irish landscape sketches. I should have said.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, it's interesting what you said about you know what's left to posterity of these cultural products you know with with, I suppose with a painting we have it now we still have it and I think people in the 19th century knew that they knew that that was important that things like dioramas and panoramas and theatrical stage design was not going to last it was going to be painted over it was too it wasn't practical to store it so I think they were aware of that and that's you know that kind of sense of a different status between you know an easel painter for instance and someone in a stage set designer although they were very much appreciated at the time as you know there is that difference in status and I do think that issue of posterity is, is kind of important and they knew that at the time so it's interesting that some of the most the most popular let's say, you know, stage spectacles that, that really affected people in the 19th century, we don't have them. So we have to kind of imagine them through the evidence that remains to us. The one you mentioned was the one that's known as the first sensation scene. I mean, it, you know, that's kind of a contested category, but Dion Boussico's The Colleen Bourne Play, which is set in Killarney in Ireland, and which uses... It uses tourist prints of Ireland and it kind of you know recreates them in this huge scale in three dimensions and then has his characters moving around these kind of astonishing mountain scenery so that's you know that's the visual aspect of these plays is something that is quite slippery really because we've got often we've got the text like in that example we have the text but it's, we have to imagine the visual impact of that on the audience. And I think quite often the visual aspect of melodrama is working almost independently of the script and of the text. It's, it's doing something separate. So, for instance, those gigantic recreated scenes of the west of Ireland, they're drawing on people's imaginary that's based on tourist images... That's got a whole set of associations for them that's not mentioned directly in the script, and we have to excavate that by finding out about those connections.
1: So you're you're basically implying that if we look at the visual element of melodrama, it could be other types of theatrical forms as well. There's a meaning embodied in the text, not just the literary text, but the sort of overall performance text as it were which is actually hidden from us now
0: that we have to excavate I mean one of my favorite I think my favorite sensation scene is the one in the Colleen Bourne which it's a moonlit scene in a water cave and the heroine Ilya O'Connor that the villain attempts to murder her by trying to drown her and what you see is the villain pushes her off into gauze waters. So this kind of moonlit gauze water was in layers. So that what, what the audience saw was her sinking down and rising up three times before she's rescued by the hero who jumps in and saves her. Now, one of the things that interests me is that uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this, Delaroche's Young Christian Martyr, a few years before this play. Now, he's a French... Artist, a history painter, Dion Busico, creating popular melodrama. But I think there's a connection there in that effect where you see this body through gauze waters and the effect that Delaroche created in that painting. To me, there's something, there's a connection there between the high and the low, between art and theatre that's, that's kind of very clearly there to me. There's also another, so for instance, that's that scene. It's part of the play, it's, you know, it's a sensation scene. When that play was adapted for a French audience a few years later, that scene was retained and it was still the sensation scene and the audience still loved it. The rest of the script, completely different. So, you know, that scene is doing something separate. It's got, a, it's, got its own, you can kind of read across, it's got its own set of meanings that are coming from the world of fine art. And that, you know, by making those connections, I hope that we're going to find out layers of meaning in the visual aspect of theatre that we're not going to get just by looking at the script. Was
1: Millet's Death of Ophelia before or after the Collingborn?
0: It's before. It's the same year as Delaroche's Young Christian Martyr. It's been speculated that those two paintings have something to do with each other. I mean, they're quite... They are similar in a way because Millet's Ophelia, which is in Tate, isn't it, Britain so that's it's another drowning heroine or yeah she's drowning isn't she she's still singing but what you see is this kind of half submerged body it's this connection between femininity and water and death that's really kind of interesting isn't it, oh, it you did, know there's yeah. a set of associations that are kind of connected
1: well also we're all bringing up something which I, I think sort of adds to a broader discussion because Martin Meisel's book Realisations is very much about the realisation of paintings on stage and they may be a sequence of paintings or a single painting developing or stimulating some form of narrative. But in a sense, I mean, you're talking about a possible but not necessarily linked realisation here, but it's always seemed to me that there's a problem between, you know, the representation of paintings on stage as one form of visual culture but in fact by implication there's a much wider visual culture operating in the relationship between art and theatre in the period.
0: Yeah so you're talking about Martin Meisel's book uh, Realisations which is sort of the bible for us in a way isn't it? People working between theatre and art and visual culture, you know, that's one of the earliest attempts to kind of draw those things together. But you're right. So realisations, that was the 19th century term for realising, making more real in three dimensions a painting, for instance, or a work of art, a print sometimes. So, like, I suppose you could say, for instance, we were just talking about Busico's The Colleen Bourne where tourist prints of, of the west of Ireland are enlarged in a kind of huge scale in three dimensions on stage, that's a realisation. Well, and
1: I was thinking also of the way that paintings tell a story, because narrative painting was so popular in the 19th century, that the story implicit in a painting is often part of a scene where the realisation of a painting will represent a key moment, like there's a painting called Waiting for the Verdict, so we all know what Waiting for the Verdict entails, and the moment that moment arises, and it may well be a play called Waiting for the Verdict as well, the Mm -hmm. audience are expecting that painting at some moment on stage, but also they're expecting an almost literal representation. But what I really Mm. wanted to bring into this discussion was the fact that because we've been so focused on Martin Meisel's view of realisation that the relationship between art and theatre and visual culture in the 19th century in more general terms has not always been explored in appropriate detail. I mean, for me, theatre is a kinetic form, so even, even scenery is part of the kinetic nature of theatrical performance. And it seems to me that if we just weigh down with the notion you realise something on stage and it's a moment based on a picture, theatre isn't just tableau.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think so many of the really effective, famous, successful visual effects of theatre have actually nothing to do with Art in in the in the traditional sense. I mean, for instance, there's a scene of Charing Cross. What play was that in? It was The
1: Streets of London, and it had a spectacular sensation scene where a fire takes place and is put out. But what all the audience really got excited about was absolutely realistic replica of uh, you know a London scene, which all the audience were familiar with and which they would almost have stepped out from and into the theatre and would step out into that scene again after they'd finished watching the play in the theatre. And what interests me about that is, on the one hand, it's almost as if, as I think it was uh, one of the critics said at the time, the audience are only happy with the palpably real, Mm. But on the other hand, you could say that London under street light and it's a snowy scene that is, you know, represented on stage, that London under street lighting is theatrical in its own right. So is it that the audience are going into the theatre to see a replica of reality or are they stepping out of the theatre realising how theatrical their surroundings are? Mm. You know, there's there's various different ways of, of looking at that and I think, again, there's been a perjurative notion that oh, you know, people are after realism and realism is uh, stunting the imagination. But actually, it may be that you see the world more theatrically
0: after I think that's, uh, visiting the theatre. That's really interesting because it makes you think about the way that theatre determined the way that people understood the world around them, which is really fascinating. And, you know, this idea of going to the theatre to see a replica of your actual environment. I and mean, that says to me that... Those spaces are charged with meaning. That's why they're significant. That's why they want to see them. And, and what you know, what's happening in a scene like that is really fascinating. It's quite difficult to pin down, isn't it? Because
1: absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure. We can't. We can only surmise or speculate about how these things worked. But I think we need to get away from the sort of cliches about realization on the one hand a sort of craven dependency on realism on another sense, because we're actually dealing with quite a complex sort of theatrical engagement with the visual in in the 19th century. And I think we haven't really talked about it, but obviously the impact of the visual emotionally on yeah. audiences as well, that we, we think about the sort of relationships in, say, melodrama being emotional but how does scenery, spectacle, s- special visual effects, how does all that impact but on But just emotion? jumping in
0: there, Jim, I mean, weren't these these kind of replicas of urban locations, weren't they changed every time the play toured to another city? I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Well,
1: the streets of London, it, it was, of course, the port of New York, the port of Liverpool. And, mm. uh, and in, in
0: each case, it was localised. But it's
1: localism, but again, my argument would be that in localising... In the theatre environment, an audience is familiar with, whether it's immediately familiar. or as with the Busiće example, it's through Taurus Prince. Mm-hmm. You're doing more than just reflecting the real; you're actually creating something quite magical as well.
0: Yes, and I think that kind of that idea that you have the real on one hand and the magical on the other is quite false. It's it's both. Yeah. It's a kind of it's a realism that's charged with meaning. For people.
1: Well, I I think this is a really useful point because there's a tendency to think, oh, pantomime scenery was fantastic and magical, Mm. but melodrama scenery was often, you know, more embedded in realism. Of course, Uh you know, you've got the antiquarian Mm. movement and the visual impact on Shakespeare and historical drama and so on. But actually, it's probably a false dichotomy. I think so. Can I ask you also, I mean, I'm assuming the darkening of the auditorium changed the visual experience of audiences from the 1880s onwards. Is there any prior examples you can give of darkening of auditory to, you know, change the audience's experience?
0: Well... Of course, theatres were brightly lit in, in most, for most of the 19th century. It's in the latter part of the century that they, they start to have a darkened auditorium, and it's associated with a change in spectatorship more generally, isn't it? But I suppose the Diorama had a darkened auditorium in the 1820s, which is really interesting. It's quite funny when you read about accounts of the Diorama show from that period. It, it, it's basically a gigantic painting, a bit like you know, bigger than a cinema screen, and painted on both sides, and the, the show used natural light to create the effect of movement and atmosphere. So it was a, a kind of, you know, a new spectacle, incredibly illusionistic, but it, it depended on having a darkened auditorium so that, you know, really for the spectator, they've got no frame of reference because all they see is this... They see the picture, and then actually the seating moves around and they see another picture. So... But it's quite funny reading accounts of it because the audiences weren't used to being in the dark together. So they're all standing on each other's feet and kind of getting confused and lost and people making really silly comments in the dark. And so it's quite funny. But um, but I suppose that's an early example of that type of spectatorship where it sort of depends on hiding the means of production from the audience. And that's associated with a kind of passive spectatorship. But actually... I would say, you know, it allows the imagination to roam in a new sort of way.
1: I think you're right, and I mean, I think, you know, we may be drawing to a conclusion there, but in, in a sense, the darkening of the auditorium doesn't necessarily make spectators more passive, just as emotional reaction rather than, say, intellectual reaction, if the two are separable in the first place, doesn't make an audience more passive. And I think one, one of the things that working on the visual elements of theatre in the 19th century really sort of brings home is the way that we can't generalise about spectator reaction, spectator passivity and so forth, because the very nature of visual stimulus is not, despite what some critics have argued, is not a, a means just to passively controlling spectatorship. Have you got any final thoughts on that? I
0: think, yeah, that's a really inspiring comment, and I think that, for me, the visual has a kind of wild card element that just leaves it open to interpretation in a different way, perhaps, than text, and that allows for a multiplicity of interpretations and a kind of active, imaginative engagement. This podcast is supported by the University of Exeter Drama Department and the Arts and Humanities Research Council.